Welcome to Celtics Beat. Adam Lowenstein of CLNS Radio is joining me. I am Jared Weiss from CLNS Radio, host of the Garden Report Celtics postgame show. We've got a fun one for you this Saturday. Jay King of MassLive.com, one of the best Celtics beat writers out there, will be joining us. It's it's a pretty, from a technical perspective, a very fascinating interview because uh, we'll, we'll tell you more about how that went down later. But there, there's a f- there are a few hiccups trying to get the interview together. Uh, there's a lot of fun and a lot of misery involved. But we brought you a good interview, and you're definitely going to enjoy it. Adam, let's get right into things now. Let's talk about the Celtics after their first full week of the season a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and a lot of in between. But I mean, the way that they went from a huge comeback to a huge collapse—I mean, we've seen just about everything you could possibly see in the first week out of this team. It is crazy just seeing all of the different types of styles that we've seen from opponents, and then we've seen just all these playoff teams, whether at their stadiums or back at the Garden, especially with Toronto on Wednesday night, and then Indiana on Friday. Just a lot of good teams that have shown Boston really how to play, really, because we've seen Dallas holding on to the lead, as you mentioned. We saw Toronto making a nice comeback. It just feels like that we're getting that excitement again, and really, will the Celtics be able to hold on to that excitement for 82 games, or will they flop like it kind of felt like in the second half last year? Well, I mean, we saw them basically do that in Wednesday's game against Toronto. I mean, they had that uh, really huge lead. This is funny. If you look at the quarter-by-quarter breakdown, they ended up winning the first by 35-23 to and then losing the second 31-22. to But really, the lead got to pretty much monumental status at some point in between there. Uh, And the fact that they blew blew it pretty quickly – and then they just got shellacked really towards the end. And it wasn't really until the last few minutes that they kind of kept things competitive again. And they made some pretty remarkable plays. But to have as many rebounds as they did, they had a, I believe it was a 55 to 24 rebounding advantage where Jared Sollinger actually had more offensive rebounds than the entire uh, Raptors team. And they still lost. It speaks to how much the turnovers were an issue. It was 27 to 7 on the turnovers and 28 actually total team turnovers. Um, But there's a lot of flaws and some also some nice silver linings going on with the team. And I thought that Wednesday game really epitomized it for them. Oh, absolutely. When they're trying to play such a high pace, it really throws them and they're still trying to figure it all out because the team was shooting a lot of threes at the end of last season, but they weren't playing in anything as far as a pace like this, it seemed like. And the crazy thing was is that it's the best rebounding differential in about 30 years for the Celtics, and they're just doing well on the, on the boards. I know it was nice to have Valanchunas out, and I think that helped them, but it's unfortunate they weren't able to hold on to the basketball which ended up really doing them in. And, of course, the shooting is not going to be consistent. We saw some big shots near the end of the game from Green. We saw some nice – we saw – I think it was a nice game-tying shot from Smart. It was just frustrating to see them not being able to pull it out, especially in front of the home crowd. Well, you know, the funny thing is you brought up the good things they did, but you didn't bring up the bad things they did. Like Jeff Green on that last play of the game, basically, taking a pretty awful contested fadeaway three-pointer. Marcus Smart had a crucial miss and crucial turnover. I mean, everybody had a crucial turnover and a crucial miss at some point in the closing stages of that game. The fact that their execution was such an absolute disaster in the second half that they could only lose by three, I think, is probably a testament. And 
on that night when we were doing the Garden Report show, and I'm sure the guys on the post-game radio show were feeling the same way, it felt really disgusting, and it felt like some sort of terrible, terrible uh, occurrence, the, the way that things went for them. But looking back on it, it was really a three-point game, and it was really a close game. And it was just, it was so, they got beat down so badly the second half of that game, you kind of forget how things actually played out in the end. Very interesting, because the team continues to give up 100-point games. You know, I, I wasn't really harping on the bad stuff, but I really want to look at just the scheme of things, where dating back to last season, they've given up 100 points basically every night, and they've already done it every game this season. They're at six straight now, including last season, um, heading into the Indiana game. And it was just frustrating that they're going to be at a, a record pace here. It's going to be 10 years since they've given up this many straight games where you're going to score more than 100 points. So I think the defense, maybe because it's part of the pace, but the defense really has been frustrating. Well, the defense is probably a little bit more of a weak point than their offense right now. The, right now, their interior defenders are Kelly Olynyk being the primary one, who I, I think he's made a lot of strides as a big man. And he's shooting the ball decently, but he's not an interior defender right now. He fouls guys, and that's really the main way that he's getting stops down low. But his rotations around the pivot aren't that good yet. He's physically not really on par with a lot of guys that can beat him up there. And when players are driving on him, he's still not that effective getting the stop on them. So that's that's going to be their biggest issue, is stopping guys in the interior. And I, I think it's somewhere – it's probably – one of the biggest things that they could improve upon throughout the season, but it's probably their biggest weakness right now because perimeter defense, especially when we go with the, when you go with the three guard lineup there, which we're going to talk about later in the show, they can be really intimidating on the perimeter. Although Jeff green, frankly, has never really inspired me much defensively, but if you can get enough perimeter pressure, you can make up for your interior deficiencies and that's that that was really the reason why they were able to win the games that they did win last year is when they were able to do that. But that's really tough. It's really tough to have a great perimeter defensive performance consistently night in, night out. The 08 Celtics did it, the 2010 Celtics did it, but these teams aren't even nearly in the same stratosphere as those teams. So you're not going to get those kind of performances that that often. And that's when the interior defense gets carved apart. You got teams, I mean, teams like Toronto, they've got guys that can drive the lane and they can score at the rim. They can score eight feet away from the rim. They can pull up from mid-range. Guys like Lowry, DeRozan, uh, Terrence Ross, uh, he uh, had a pretty lousy game, but he's a guy that can do that too. Um, And of course, Valanciunas is out, but Valanciunas is that guy that's going to be beating up on Olenek next time Olenek's out there, uh, next time that he's out there. And I almost forgot Lou Williams, another really good kind of close-range, mid-range scorer. So, Teams like that, and Toronto did it a lot last year, they're able to score, they're able to pull the defenders where they want them and then get the shot off in the little spaces that the defenders are giving them. And the Celtics, they don't have the kind of guy that can close those gaps the way that teams like the Pelicans and the Thunder and all those guys do. The Bulls we'll talk about later in the show. So until they have a guy that can that can move well near the rim and get his hands up and make some athletic plays. They're just—they're not going to be able to stop people from scoring interior on them. It, it is really frustrating, and and one thing I wanted to harp on as far as the 
uh, perimeter defense was the fantastic way they were able to come back in Dallas. Being able to do that on the road and against one of the best teams in the league at this point, it feels like, in the Dallas Mavericks, they were able to wreak havoc with anybody who was handling the basketball really coming down the floor. Devin Harris especially, who couldn't even get past half court, it felt like, with Smart and Bradley being all over the place. So we've seen it already just through a few games this season. It's just fantastic to see the perimeter defense really being a strength and them being really maybe one or two pieces away with regard to having a very, very strong defense in this league and possibly being a top 10 defense, I think, with one addition as far as a big man goes. I feel like just being able to show even worse the inside defense was what Zeller had on Wednesday. I think it was six minutes and three fouls, including, I think, one big one, which was an and one near the end of the game. Uh, as far as a fast break opportunity, I think off of uh, Jeff Green missed three. So just seeing those situations where they're not able to even protect the hoop when Zeller's out there, who I guess is their closest guy to being tall, I guess, on the inside. <laughs> He's the only thing, right? It's it's a, a stick in there. Well, the funny thing is, don't forget, Kelly Olynyk's seven feet. It's hard, it's hard to remember that. He is seven <laughs> feet. He doesn't play like a seven-footer. I think he... He plays probably closer to like Andrea Bargnani, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean Bargnani, for all the problems he's had, is a pretty, pretty great talent for his size. He just he's kind of been a a, a nightmare. But Olenek's more of of that type of player, so he's not going to make a physical impact at least for now. He could eventually. Um, and you, you look at guys like Ryan Anderson. Although I, I don't think he's that great of a defender, he's a very good rebounder. And Ryan Anderson's very similar to Kelly Olenek. He's a he's a big guy, although he's only about six nine. He's a big guy that can move pretty well, and he's a deadly shooter from pretty much anywhere on the court. And he can put the ball on the ground and drive the rim, uh, drive to the rim even from the perimeter. And I think that's a guy that Olenek could pro- should probably be aspiring to be similar to. And he'll still muscle up on guys, box guys out, throw them out of the way. I haven't really seen Olenek box guys out or kind of gain leverage on the glass that much so far in his career. He certainly has gotten a good amount of rebounds. I think most of them are probably when he had a really good height advantage or he just had the positioning already. But you see the way that Jared Solinger is probably one of the better guys in the league, not just for his age group, but really just of all rebounders in the league, at being able to carve out position and gain leverage while the ball's in the air. And Olenek's kind of the opposite kind of rebounder where he doesn't really have any of those skills yet. He just has the length and he's usually in the spot. Yeah, it's just frustrating trying to see this team trying to put everything together but losing so many ball games. It feels like there's definitely a lot to be seen so far and we've been excited just with all the progress. It's just the W's are going to be tougher than you know, expected, especially after the opening night, because opening night just felt unbelievable because you were just able to get so many great things coming together, especially against a team that really showed that they could be a playoff team last year, even with Pierce gone. Well, the funny thing is the way that the Nets came out that night, that was as bad as I've seen them play really since like the, the bad New Jersey days. I mean, that was a train wreck from them. <laughs> Darren Williams was an absolute shell of himself that night. I mean, just... Everything went wrong for them. And Williams has kind of gotten his mojo back a little bit now. Um, I, I think maybe that, I think his, how terrible he looked and how much everybody basically laughed at him for how terrible he looked might have kind of given him the kick in the pants that he needed to get himself back up there and running. But, I mean, the, those guys, they're a team that generally has under, like, there's a lot of guys that have generally underachieved for the most part over the past year. 
although I'm definitely liking what Mirza Toledovich is starting to turn into. He's starting to look like another Hito Turkoglu, which is, once again, not a diss. It always seems like these comparisons are a diss, but it's hard to remember Hito Turkoglu once was actually an all-star caliber player. Anybody that watched the 9 Eastern Conference Finals when Dwight Howard and Turkoglu basically carved up the Celtics uh, will definitely remember that. But you know, th- those Nets guys are just not ready for the season. The Celtics were absolutely ready for the season. And then you see how things played out after that. The Nets start getting a couple wins, although they lost to the Timberwolves on Wednesday. But you know, it, it shows that if you bring it and you play with heart on any given night, you can win anything. And Doc Rivers was someone that kind of talked about that earlier in the week. He was saying that the Clippers aren't playing with heart, which is a big statement considering that the Clippers weren't winning. They were getting killed by the Warriors. And although the Warriors are certainly a a very, very good team, the Clippers are probably the most talented team in the league or just about right there with a couple other teams. So for them to lose a game, that means that they have to really not bring it. They have to be sitting back and, and just be driving in third gear. And the Nets really showed up in first gear and never really got out of it that game. The Celtics were ready to roll as soon as the game started. I mean, they, they were they were pounding them hard. They got off to a big lead pretty quickly. And they did that again in that Toronto game, but just everything fell apart for them. And they got the offense got discombobulated. I think it was really that second unit that came in with Eric. Uh, I keep saying Eric Turnover, Evan Turnover, um, who, who, who I like a lot. I really like Evan Turner. He's a great guy off the court, and he's a, he's a nice player on the court. Uh, but he was an absolute disaster in that game, and that and that really killed him. I mean, just the, they started giving the ball away, and they never recovered from that. And you can, if you don't have it mentally, and this is a, a relatively young team, it's a relatively new team, then the Celtics, they're not gonna, they're, they don't have. It doesn't appear that they have the leadership in place yet to kind of turn them around if they're losing themselves, losing themselves mentally in a game, and they have a lot of guys that can be pretty erratic and that's going to bury them quickly in a lot of games this year. And that's where a lot of their losses are going to come from. Oh, absolutely. And it's the, the really big part of it, I think is being able to hold on to leads. The teams are always going to make runs, but the Celtics seem to be giving up so many runs over the last few years since they've become the below 500 team that we were used to before the big three era. So here's an interesting statistic that I saw from, from Sean Grandy. Brad Stevens now, as a Celtics head coach, is 19-6 and six when getting a lead above 15 points. So that's a lot of losses already for a coach that hasn't been able to get the, the veteran leadership on his team. And I feel like there's a lot of reasons why you lose those games. Six games that they've lost with that big of a lead is pretty frustrating when you're supposed to win, what, 9 out of 10 or even more of those games. So I feel like that's something that really needs to be worked on. And we see on the court the reasons why it's happening, where there's ill-timed shots and there's a lot of turnovers, and sometimes really just can't put together the consistent offense when you're depending on jump shooters and not being able to get to the hoop as much. Well, first off, Grandy is the absolute Celtic stat master. You're you're definitely getting there, but Grandy just always pulls a beautiful one out of nowhere right before game time too. It always comes out of absolute nowhere. But you'll probably you will be a successor as Stats Adam, of course. But appreciate stat, Stats Sean Grandy definitely is the king, uh, the all time king at this point. But it, it, I'm actually frankly surprised that 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 it, he has that few losses. I actually thought it would be a lot worse. Interesting. See, I, I mean, because it, se- it seems like a much, much better, bigger problem than the stats would make it sound like. It seems like they are probably below 500 in those games, just on 
how many of these leads we've seen them blow. It's that crushing when a, a lead goes and gets disintegrated like that. Maybe they've won a few of those. I'm sure a few of those have been by, what, a few points, you think? It's it's possible that just the net point differential, uh, that, that and then compare that to what your, your feeling is as a Celtics fan when you see them lose this type of lead. And, and at this point, it kind of becomes what common commonplace when you see it happen like that well you know the other shocking thing though is that not only is it commonplace but that th- they've had so ba- based on that number it's 25 games where they've had a lead of 15 plus he's only coached 80 about 85 games so far in his career so that's about 30 percent of his games in his career his team has had a 15 point lead I, I i mean i'm i don't really know the numbers off the top of my head about how that bears out across the league but that sounds like it's a relatively high number for a guy that had a for a team that just was really bad in his first season, I'm kind of shocked that they had that many 15 point leads as that high of a percentage of the games that he's coached so far. And I think it speaks a lot to how good he can build these teams and how much of a lack of talent and cohesion these teams have had so far. Absolutely, it's it's odd. You're right. And now now that you think about it, when you put that in perspective, at least they've been able to put up the points, or at least being able to have that differential, at least during the game, as opposed to the final result, I guess. But it'll be interesting. I feel like coming down the the stretch of just November, where it seems like the games are going to be less. Uh, put together, I feel like the, the, the schedule itself is going to be a little more spread out than it was last year. They had to play so many games in the first month or so, and then they had a nice little break in December. This year, I feel like you actually get the, the break a little early on, so that you can at least get to you know come together a little bit, a little more easily at the beginning. All right. Well, that was a good talk. Let's let's get into our interview with Jay King here. Uh, so the first part of the interview, we actually I was on my way to go do the interview with him. And I hit a curb, and my tire actually exploded, uh, and my, the re- rear passenger tire exploded. So I had to wait for AAA. He had a small window, so we had to just call each other, and I recorded it on my phone using my voice recorder on the phone. So uh, it's it's going to sound a lot different than part two, which we had a lot more higher-quality microphones for that interview when we were in person for that. But here's part one. It's about seven minutes long or so. We started to kind of get a rhythm in the interview before it got cut off because uh, the tow truck game but you're gonna enjoy it and then we're gonna come back we're gonna do part two and then we'll get into the chicago game a little bit before we go around the nba in five so enjoy our interview with jay king of masslive.com all right so we're here with jay king i'm stranded on the side of a road right now but we figured out some way to hook it up so that i can record off of my phone so the audio is not going to be pretty but it is going to be some absolutely gorgeous celtics talk so Let's just let's just break down what we've seen in the first few games. Now we're talking on a Thursday night. This is coming out on a Saturday, but just based off Wednesday night's game, which was pretty shocking, and really just the way that they've been playing in the past few games has been a lot of up and down, but a lot of a lot of highs that are probably higher than what people were expecting at this point. Yeah, definitely. You know, they, they've had stretches where they've looked really good. Obviously, the second half comeback against Dallas, they looked great. The whole game against Brooklyn, they looked really good. Uh, you know, stretches of the Houston game, stretches of this Raptors game. Yeah, they look good. Their rebounding has been really good. They're, they've done a lot of good things. It's just their November schedule is just brutal. You know, they've played four really good teams, three of whom probably have a pretty good chance of reaching 50 wins. And so they're they're not going to win a lot of games right away. But I, I do think they're better from last, than last year. Obviously, Rondo's back. Rondo's Rondo again. 
and a lot of their young players are taking a step forward too. So they are better. How much that will affect the win column remains to be seen. So, okay, let's talk about the three-guard lineup. So it has a lot of flaws and a lot of really, really great advantages. And so far, I don't think they've really weighed out dramatically one way or the other. But just what's your take on the feasibility of doing a smart Rondo-Bradley rotation? And can you come up with a great nickname for it? Because I know that's something that people are trying to figure out. <laughs> uh, nickname, I don't know. As, as far as throwing the sounds, obviously, you know, it's a small lineup. It's not a, the best shooting lineup. It's, there's a lot of, it's a weird, just a weird unit, especially with Jeff Payne at the four. Like, he's not a good rebounder there. He's not a very good interior defender. So it's just like, just a weird lineup. But that being said, those three guys, Rondo, Bradley, and Smart, they're just pressure guys. And they make you turn the ball over. And better yet, when they've had those three guys in the court, they haven't really turned the ball. They, they really handle the ball well. So it, it, it's, a, it's a lineup that's designed to maximize possession and pick up the pace of the game. And, and it's fun. And I, don't know, I don't know how good it will be. I don't know if they can use it against every team. It's just fun. It's just, you know, guys are just in the opponent's shorts. They're passing, passing up the court and just Baskets everywhere. It's just fun. Uh, you know, Marcus Smart is just real physical, tough kid. Bradley and Rondo, they're, they're as tough as they get. And it's weird because obviously the Celtics have had a lot better team during Rondo's tenure. But this is like the first team that's kind of built for him. It's like they have big guys that stretch the floor all the way to the three point arc. They have athletes that can run with him. They have a coach who, who stresses pace all the time and just wants to pick up full court, who wants to, you know, fast break all the time. And it's like, like Rondo last night against the Raptors was, was just fantastic. He, he was, especially when they got middle, and they were just going. And it was fun. It, it was fun basketball. And obviously, we've missed that Rondo for, you know, a year and a half now since, since he, now he's back. And they're, they're a fun team. I, I think they play a fun brand of basketball. If they can find consistency, if they can find a way to, to put those and, and make those strings of tricks basketball longer. They're going to be a really fun team to watch. And the thing is, I mean, Rondo looks more comfortable this year, right? But I feel like it's as much his own physicality as it is to just the guys that are around him are better suited for him. It's not, I wouldn't necessarily consider it to be closer to the great teams that they had, but they have some of those components where they've got more guys that can handle the ball. They've got more guys that can shoot from the elbows in the corners and can stretch it out. And it seems like he's got more room to work with. He's got more guys to hit and he's able to get into the break a little bit more than he was able to last year with guys that actually were able to get the ball from him. Yeah. I think part of it too is, is that Steven is really suffering the fast break. You know, when you have Kevin Garnett, when you have Paul Pierce, how much do you really want a fast break? You know, those guys, those guys are old and yeah, like, they're capable of, of excelling at fast break offense, but you put too much stress on their bodies. Now they've got a young team, a deep team, and they just want to run, run people into the ground. And, and it's, it hasn't obviously had a lot of benefits in the win column yet, one and three, but you can see what Steven is trying to build, and he's trying to build that free-flowing offense. He's trying to build that really aggressive defense. And you can see how Rondo fits, and you can see why they keep saying they want him around for the future because they really do think 
that he's a great fit for Stevens' offense. You know, we've had, there's been a lot of talk about is, is he a good fit? You know, can, can he, because he pounds the ball a lot, is he good for that motion offense? So far, he looks perfect. And Stevens said this today. He's like, he's like, yeah, we talked about we think he's a great fit. And he said, so far, you can see it. And, and it is so true. Like, they just look really good when Rondo's out there running the break. And when, he, when he's running everything. And I think that Stevens' offense can, can maybe maximize what Rondo did. And, and it won't be the other way around at all. And so it, it's neat to see that in action because Stevens has said that from day one. And people kind of kind of doubted that a little bit, I think. And now now you've seen it. And he's basically averaging a triple-double, leading the league in this. And I think I saw that today on Twitter. I think Sherrod tweeted it. That he's the first player since 61-62 with 52 with at least 50 assists and 36 rebounds in the first four games since Oscar Robertson. And I was like, that's pretty pretty good company, you know? It's a big O more than 50 years ago. So he, he's doing some some great things. Obviously, you know, he wants to cut his turnovers and and shoot a little better from the floor. But I really do think Stevens' offense and and defense, the whole scheme is just really built to, to let Rondo tell. All right, so now we're in the garden. We're in the bowels of the garden. We were in my car, immediately we transported to the garden, and we were talking about the three-headed monster of Smart, Bradley, and Rondo, whether or not it's actually a monster. I just want to get your take one more time on that. I don't know if it's a monster. It's intriguing, though. Uh, you know, obviously, they're quick, they're fast, they're gritty. They can force turnovers. They can get out in transition. Can they shoot well enough? Can they defend bigger guys can they use that lineup against everybody or is that just something you can do in certain situations you know after it was so good against Dallas I think they only played three or four minutes together the other night so it's something to look forward to it's something that you know it'll be intriguing moving forward will it it be a huge part of what they do I don't know but it's definitely fun and neat and interesting but it's fun to be dynamic this year they weren't they weren't dynamic last year really at all for the most part yeah they weren't much of anything last year so (laughs) And I think it helps this year that they have a little more trust in Jeff Green, I think, at the four. And he had trouble last year learning that position, and now it's just, he says it's kind of simplified. And he's no longer having issues there, and that's that's good for them because if he can play four and they can get away with him there, then they can use that three-guard lineup and then be super athletic with Green at the four. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a big piece of this too. And But they have to get away with that. He's not a great rebounder. He's not a great interior defender. So... So that's another part where you don't know how much it's going to work and against who it can work. So we'll see. We're seeing he's not a good half-court defender, but in transition, he's made some big plays this year, which he hasn't done a lot in the past. That chase down block the other night was sweet, wasn't it? A little Tayshawn Prince going on there. Oh, Tayshawn. Normally you go with the LeBron there with the Tayshawn. No, I remember that block of Reggie Miller. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites. So he, he doesn't have to create anymore, and that's a big thing. That you're taking a lot of the creativity responsibility out of Jeff's hands. That was a that was a bit of an issue for him last year. That really kind of got them stuck in the mud when he was put in the position where he had to create off the dribble, and he wasn't passing the ball that well. He wasn't going to the left that well, and it was pretty easy to defend him in those situations. Yeah, last year they were middle of the pack in pace. So far through four games, they're number three. So I think Green benefits from that as much as anybody. If he can get space, if he can be on transition, if he can have other guys creating for him. Like Rondo running down the middle of the court, he's spotting up or getting out in transition. That helps him so much, more than any of the other guys, because he, as you said, he's not great at creating his own offense against a half-court defense. So 
so far I think that fast pace is benefiting him more than anybody. And I, he's he's had a nice start to the season. It's bouncing back from really a, a tough end to last year. He's probably shooting a little bit more than he uh, more when he wants to rather than when he has to. Like I think last year he was kind of forced. There were plays where he basically had to be the guy shooting the ball. And now you take the ball out of his hands more. That means he's picking his spots, especially from three-point land, where a lot of the time he was just kind of throwing up threes because it was the only option he had left on the play. Yeah, it seems like now he's doing the work early to get easier shots, whereas last year it was like he would come off kind of lazy around a screen and have a guy in front of him and settle for something stupid. Mm-hmm. Now he's coming around that screen sharply, and it's a lot easier for him right now. And as I said, the transition helping a lot. So. All good signs from him so far. Defensively, too, he's been pretty good. You know, he guarded Dirk the other day. He's he's done some good things defensively. I think he's defending better than he has since that 2013 playoff run when, you know, he was their third best player behind KG and Paul Pierce. What do you attribute the coming around screens to? Because in the past, he's talked about how my laid-back demeanor is part of me. But the thing is, and, like, that's my identity. The thing is, is that we saw things on the court that were laid-back that you can't believe. For instance, curling around screens, hedging, that kind of stuff. But it's he's coming out sharper, more aggressive this year. It, he t- talked to me about this the other day. He said every day Steven stresses to him, just play hard. And as simple as that sounds, it's like that's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you play hard, not just once you have the ball, but the whole possession, then it helps. And I, I think he added like 10 pounds of muscle over the offseason. He said he put in a lot of time to his body. And so I, th- I think just being in better shape helps, too, uh, if he is in better shape. I don't know. He looks in better shape. He, he's definitely more active on both sides of the court. So he looks good so far. Uh, all good signs, as I said. Very quickly, New Jersey is... Uh, yuck. Yuck. Yeah. One word, yuck. That's it. <laughs> We're done with Jay King. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. That's it from Jay King on Celtics Beat. Well, that was jkingamasslive.com. That was a really fun interview. It's definitely a fun uh, edit job uh, in post-production, too. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. So let's get into a few live reads before we talk some of the Bulls game here. So we have to talk about our YouTube page. So if you want exclusive content this NBA season, you're tired of five-second sound bites on TV, look no further than the CLNS Radio YouTube channel. You get exclusive content unedited from the locker room much more subscribe today guys and then of course we have to talk about the garden report with jared weiss and, and everybody everybody who does such a great job at the garden Celtics fans it's back the garden report with locker room reporter jared weiss as i just mentioned watch jared following every seas game this season at td garden in high definition on the clns youtube channel it's simply the best celtics post game coverage period and don't forget, we like to do the Twitter bag for you guys. So use hashtag on board, tweet me a question, and we'll get it answered for you on air when we do our Twitter bag segment. Open those tweets up there. But you also got to listen right after the game to the Celtics post game show. So it may be the dawning of a new age in Celtics basketball, but it's the same post game coverage that you've grown to expect from us. The Celtics post game show is back following every regular and postseason game. CLNS will be taking your calls and featuring live reports from TD Garden, usually done by me. It's the Celtics post game show, and it's only on CLNS Radio. Are you on Facebook and Twitter? Of course you are. The real question, why aren't you liking CLNS Radio or following CLNS Radio? Do it now. Interact with CLNS and get the latest updates on CLNS programming and more. Interact with CLNS on social media today. 
And don't forget, you got to follow Celtic Speed on Twitter. You got to like the Garden Report on Facebook. Follow Adam and I on Twitter. Adam, what's your Twitter handle? It's at Stats Adam. That's it. That's too easy. Mine's <laughs> at CLNS underscore Jared Weiss. Uh, and just one more thing before we start talking again. Got to get the 411 on CLNS Radio Daily, as the kids used to say, and delivered right to your email inbox. It's the CLNS eblast. So text CLNS fans to 22828 and stay informed on shows, guests like jkingamasslive.com, contests, and much, much more. It's a CLNS eblast. Text CLNS fans to 22828. And do it now, although actually listen to the rest of the podcast and then do it. So, E-Blast out of the way, all those talks out of the way. Let's talk about the Bulls. Now, the Bulls are a stacked team. There are a lot of people's favorites to win the Eastern Conference, maybe even win the title. And that's all completely square on Derrick Rose pulling it off and being healthy. And it's sad that pulling it off with Derrick Rose refers to him just being healthy and playing. And, of course, because it's Derrick Rose, he got hurt again. He landed on someone's ankle, rolled his ankle. Sprained ankle, is playing through it a little bit. He's kind of taking some games on, some games off. It's kind of a nightmare if you're a basketball fan to see the way that Derrick Rose's career is going right now because he's such a spectacular player. We've had some guys that got hurt that, you know, they were nice players, but it wasn't like that. It It didn't really ruin the league for you if they weren't playing. But Derrick Rose is one of the most unique players in NBA history. I mean, he really is. I don't think we've ever seen a player that had all the different physical and skill components that he had. I mean, it's he's really a one-of-a-kind player ever in NBA history. And to see the way that his career has completely torpedoed only due to injury. not He hasn't done anything off the court or on the court. Uh, he hasn't lost skills or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, he was, he was just a shooting star, and he... I guess he, I guess he ran into another star that knocked him down and set him off a different on a different path. But you got you just you want to see him you want to see him stay healthy. It's not even like you want to see him get back to his old form and dominate. You just you want to see him on the court. It hurts when you see him rolling his ankle and sitting on the bench and then getting back in there and he looks pretty raw. I mean, what's it like for you, stats, Adam? It's kind of interesting watching this Bulls team because Tom Thibodeau is the well, the head coach doesn't feel like he's the head of the organization because of all the quarrels that he's had with the organization itself. and But just having Thibodeau there and the defensive mindset, it feels like the continuation of the Celtics' new Big 3 era in some way. Even though there's no real big Celtics that ever made it there, except for Brian Scalabrini, it's the idea that we kind of have that feeling where they're never really that hated LeBron team, but they kind of have that soft spot because they're always the underdog that could that just couldn't make it to the finals still since that uh, epic, you know, Jordan run in 98. So it's kind of like that team that you kind of feel like that soft spot for, and you always want to root for them, especially with how Derrick Rose's situation has gone down. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, people love the Bulls because they're a gritty team. They're a team that, for the most part, has been built on draft picks. I mean, they, they brought in Carlos Boozer, which was a kind of a disaster for them <laughs> for the most part. But otherwise, they're enti- otherwise, their core almost entirely has been draft picks, although now we have Pau Gasol in the mix. But they're, they kind of they epitomize, for the most part, the way you want to build a team. You want to build a team through the draft and through developing players – and by developing a great culture with great leadership at the top. And I think they've done that pretty much as well as any franchise in the league has done. Obviously, Spurs excluded because nothing in sports really can touch the Spurs except maybe the Patriots. 
and the Kansas City Royals apparently this year somehow. I have no idea how that happens. But I I really respect the Bulls program over the years. I think even when they had Del Negro, they still had a good program. They still ran a good franchise. It's just that Del Negro never really has cut it as like a really a, a top-level coach. He's kind of a guy that you give him a good team and he can get them to the playoffs, but he's never a guy that take him over the top. And Thibodeau is that guy. And I remember that there were concerns about whether Thibodeau was going to be a successful coach because of his interpersonal skills. And he seems to have done a good job of, even though that might still sometimes be an issue that appears to kind of make its way to the public with him, he has really done a great job building the culture there and making them a kind of a self a self-fulfilling team there. They're not really a team that needs to be barked at because they've developed the culture, they've developed the system, they execute so well, and they pretty much epitomize what they're trying to, like what their kind of mission statement is. Well, absolutely. And I feel like it's something that you see on the court with them because of all the heart that they put in to every game. And that might be one of the reasons why they've struggled so much in the playoffs. When you go through an 82-game season and you try to play Jimmy Butler 40 minutes, and and you see players out there so much, and actually, you know what, 40 minutes was a low night for Butler for most of the last year. I know, jeez. It's crazy that Thibodeau, when he's taken over the, the head role, he kind of just went crazy, and he still feels like he needs to win every ball game as far as the regular season goes. But the NBA is not a regular season endeavor. If anything, we've seen from Greg Popovich that you need to get ready for the postseason, especially when you have some age. When you add Pal Gasol to your roster, you need to put yourself in a position where you can't have, you know, you can't have a situation where LeBron is on another team in your conference and you're down a player or two when you meet them in whatever round it is. I guess it would be the second or third round when you look at the last few years. So I think that's something that I've worried about as far as the Bulls go. But whenever you see them in the regular season, you always have to fear them, rows or no rows. Well, burnout's a serious issue. I mean, you can't... you got to have your guys for the playoffs. Everything is for the playoffs. You need the regular season to identify... or not identify, I was going to say identify your identity. You need to find your identity... In the regular season, you need to establish it later in the year so that it's ready to roll once you get to the playoffs. You need to hone in on what your eight-man rotation is going to be. Now, Chicago, for the most part, really plays with an eight-man rotation throughout the regular season, and that causes burnout issues for their team. And it seemed like Luol Deng suffered from that a little bit over the uh, uh, occasionally. Um, Joakim Noah has had has dealt with that a little bit. And you know, Noah and Butler, those guys play like 40 minutes a game. There was, I remember there was a game last year where Butler p- played like 52 minutes yes. in one game, yeah. which is incredible. I think he sat for like one minute. And it's there's very few players in the, in the NBA that can do stuff like that and can continue to be dominant throughout the game. And Butler and Kawhi Leonard, who's another very similar player that's in a pretty similar position in his career right now, though Jimmy Butler hasn't won any finals MVPs yet, but... <laughs> They, they are generally in a very similar stage of their careers. Those are guys that they hit, they just they have it inside of them. You know, they just they have they have the second wind, the third wind, and it, like it doesn't even phase them. It's not it's not really a matter of second wind or third wind. And so, so these guys, they just they have their job, they have their assignment, and they just go do it as much as they can as long as they're allowed to do it. And having guys like that on your team is what transforms an identity into a, into a program. And these guys, they they know who they want to be, and they have people like Butler and Noah that allow them to be those guys. And that's what the Spurs are able to do. 
And that's what that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier. It's what the Clippers want to do, and the Warriors are starting to do. It's you need to have you need to have guys that can work their butts off at a top level. It can't just be like a bunch of like James Posey guys. You need guys that are bigger than that guys. I mean, that's kind of what Paul Pierce did for this team when they won the title. Was I mean, he's obviously a, a Hall of Fame level scorer, but he was a guy that was playing defense. He was moving the ball. He was being tough, and he was leading in between plays, and he was calling things out. I mean, that's what he was able to do for them. And, of course, KG has epitomized that kind of role forever. But the, the, what makes the Bulls so good is they have several guys that are glue guys that do it at, that play at an elite level. And when you have that as your core, that's what allows you to handle all the bumps along, along the way that you have. But you still have to have that core ready to go when it gets to the playoffs. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like what's crazy about the Bulls is that they continue to be one of the best teams in the NBA, no matter who's on the floor for them. And I think I might have mentioned that a little bit before, but they are still a top 10 team in offensive and defensive efficiency early in the season. And they've gotten off to that nice start. And they didn't have really the lull that we saw the Nets have at the beginning of the season. They've really been able to stay out there. And even though they do have a loss in their record, but they still are up in the, the top of the Eastern Conference standings. They should be for the rest of the season. We'll just see where they land really when all the, the chips fall at the end of the 82 games. Well, you know what? They've got a pretty tremendous backcourt, and if it's still there by the end of the year, they're going to be just about the best team of basketball. And it's, I think it's, it's probably as simple as that. Absolutely. I think so. And I feel like as far as how the Celtics go into this matchup, you're talking about the amazing backcourt. The Celtics, as we've discussed, have what is in the making of being one of the best court, backcourts in the NBA. But we're not really not sure about where they're developing, how they're going to develop over these years, but we've seen the defense thus far and then spots of offense, especially with the Rondo triple-double recently. Uh, what do you think about the matchup between the Celtics' three guards or how they're going to play their three-guard lineup and then the Bulls on Saturday? Well, you know, that's their problem is that the Celtics might have good talent for a backcourt, but they've got three guys while the backcourt's two guys. So, I mean, really... The whole like idea of a two-man backcourt, it's it's mostly reliant on defense because ideally the more ball handlers and shooters, the better, better especially nowadays. But it's usually that if you have a third guard there, that means he has to defend a 6'7", six, 6'8", six, swingman with muscle. Now, Marcus Martin and Avery Bradley are two guys that can step up to that occasion. Uh, doing it for 40 minutes, though, is, is a whole different story. I don't think that's going to work, but they can definitely... I mean, you remember the way that Rondo used to guard LeBron. It was pretty remarkable. It's honestly, of all the things I can remember over the years, I think just the images of in the playoffs, Rondo like bending pretty much underneath LeBron's waist and sticking his head up like into his stomach and the way that he was defending him. It was, it was pretty remarkable. And it's and just that kind of intensity and energy and confidence is what made that team so great. And Bradley and Smart are two guys that have that. And they're young, and their energy is boundless, and they're both tough, and they can handle. They can probably handle a lot of small forwards in the league. Now Rondo was only doing that for about eight minute stretches in crunch time. He wasn't doing it the entire game. And if you're if you're starting a three man unit, that means that you basically are going to be going with that unit for the majority of the game, and that's going to be your closing unit. And to be able to do that throughout the game, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to work, especially when you're going up against a Bulls team that they could have Nikola Mirotic and Jimmy Butler out there at the same time. Those are two huge uh, swingmen that are going to be, you're not going to be able to handle them physically. It's going to be frustrating just because of all the talent that's on the Bulls roster. And we've seen up against the playoff teams from last year, 
it's going to be tough just being able to stay up with them for 48 minutes. And I'm glad the games are still 48 minutes for now after what we saw in the preseason. But it's going to be tough for that long of a game because we know this Celtics team is going to have their peaks and valleys. They can go and have a crazy offensive first quarter and being able to blow out a team like the Raptors at the beginning of the game without Valanchunas. But if Rose is in the lineup and they're not able to get that separation at any point, you don't really get the opportunity to have a nice little lead. And I'm not sure how many of those amazing Dallas Maverick comebacks we're going to see this season. Uh, not very many. I, I certainly don't imagine. I can't imagine. It's, it's not going to happen that often. Uh, for their sake, it's hopefully that because they're not going to be digging themselves into those kind of holes nearly as often. But, I mean, they're a team that can go on the, on runs. And we saw on Wednesday when they get hot with their shooting, they can be pretty devastating because they, they can force turnovers on the perimeter. They can score in transition and they can hit deep shots. Uh, and every NBA team is going to have those kind of spurts. And... The Celtics are capable of doing that more frequently than a lot of teams, but they're also their low nights when the other team is doing that to them and they're beating them up on the interior. Those are going to be really, really low nights for them. Absolutely. But, hey, this pace is going to be fun to watch. That's what makes the Celtics team making this exciting already thus far, being one of the high-paced teams in the league and just actually having an efficient offense with the high pace. Yeah, that's what's important is if you're going to be a team that's not going to be winning a lot of games – don't be boring. And they were boring a lot of the time last year. But this year's team, the pace is going to be faster. They've got more dynamic scores and ball handlers. they got more shooters. They're going to be – they might only win five more games than last year. And I think that's probably – I think that's what I predicted before the year. And, and that's, that's not going to be a good team. It's going to be a bad team. But they're going to be a lot more enjoyable to watch. Absolutely. And I think we're going to be excited to see where they go this season. I think uh... – there's a lot to be seen, but we might be seeing another lottery, though, most likely. All right, well, that's enough Celtics talk, so let's get into Around the NBA in 5. LeBron James does not quite look like himself. Adam, what's going on with LeBron? All right, well, we saw this, obviously, at the beginning of the Miami Heat era. You think they're still going to win the finals, right? I feel like that's they're, they're still the... the the prohibitive favorite, right? It's hard to bet against them, isn't it? I mean, why why bet against LeBron? Why bet against Greg Popovich? It's certain lessons you just learn over and over in life. And they have so many more games to go. I just feel like it just doesn't seem like you can jump ship anywhere before an all-star break. Absolutely. I mean, he's a guy that looks like he just he physically doesn't look the same like he did a year ago or several months ago. Maybe he has to get himself back into lifting shape and he's like put on a little bit more muscle, but he's not elevating. He's not driving with the kind of confidence and dominance that he usually does. And there's definitely something's a little bit off with him, but it might just be more the team and the whole the whole thing that's been going on with this whole massive event in Cleveland. Uh, but he's definitely a guy that I do expect to be coming back and bouncing back in full force. We always remember that or all the talk about from the offseason was losing all the weight. So I guess we'll see if that has an effect. Thunder, the injuries, it's its really a disaster for them right now. How much trouble are they in? See, this is going to be interesting. Everybody talks about the easy schedule, but can they win any of those games? We'll see if they can beat anybody but the 76ers. It, it seems like th- there's a situation where even Reggie Jackson might not be 100%. I, I don't even know where we're going with this. This team is one of the worst teams in the league as far as offense goes without those two stars. They could be well below 500 a few uh, you know, a few months in, and then it, 
it really they the playoffs might be in question depending on how well they can you know come back from those injuries. Well, if they were in the East, you wouldn't be saying this, but I mean the the Suns missed the playoffs with almost fifty wins last year. I mean you have to you have to be a great team just to make the playoffs in the West. Oh, absolutely, it's crazy. And then speaking of just how many great teams there are, who's your who's the best team in the NBA thus far this season? For me, I mean the Rockets. Just at, at the time of our recording, they're six and zero. And I mean, they're the undefeated team that's left. The way that they've bounced out of that Chandler Parsons debacle, Trevor Ariza has been a perfect fit for them. And you're, I mean, you're seeing that they're just they're ready for this season, and they're ready to prove to everybody that they think they really are the best team in the league, and that Parsons made a mistake leaving. And I'm gonna go with another Western Conference team, but just kind of. Lurking in the shadows here because of all the Clay Thompson situation. I'm going mm-hmm. with the Golden State Warriors just because we talked about how the Clippers have kind of lost their muster early in the season, but the Warriors took advantage of it and just destroyed them. And I feel like when you're putting up that many points and your defense is looking strong this early and they have a pretty complete roster, they might have over- underachieved recently under Mark Jackson. Maybe Steve Kerr can pull everything out of them. They could be that, that niche pick to make it to the finals. And you're a really good team if Andre Iguodala is your sixth man. Because Andre Iguodala is still an all-star caliber player, and he's your sixth man. I mean, that's pretty spectacular. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, a former all-star, and he's a little bit older than Iguodala, is Paul Pierce. He leaves the Nets, he goes to the Wizards, and it's looking like it's a pretty good fit for so far. So who do you think's a better team now? Who's going to be higher in the East? Is it going to be the Wizards or the Nets? See, that's a great question because... Really, we've seen this Nets team bounce up and down while the Wizards have actually had a great start to the season after losing their first game of 2014-15. I honestly like the Wizards because of their depth. We've seen Otto Porter already come up and, and look strong for that team on a couple nights. I think because the Nets have underachieved during the regular season, we've seen this several times, I think I have to go with the Wizards, and I think they'll go farther in the playoffs just because of their playoff experience that we've seen with this roster. Couldn't agree more. You get a healthy Bradley Beal, and that team's pretty much unbeatable except for in the Eastern Conference, except for when they're facing Chicago and Cleveland. I think they're actually better than Toronto, and I do like Toronto a lot. Uh, but one team I'm not liking a lot right now is the Lakers. This is our last thing here. Over under 10 wins for the Los Angeles Lakers. All right, let's let's spice this up. I'm going under just because we could see Kobe in New York maybe by the end of the season. We could see Ed Davis be their best player. Well, I guess he's already been their best player this far. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So it's kind of crazy when D'Antoni might be playing for that team later in the year. I know he's not even the coach anymore, but he might be coming back to play. (laughs) Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go one over. I don't think they if they're gonna get the over, I don't think they deserve much more than one or two wins over that. So I'll give them one over. It seems like they might be one of the worst defenses in NBA history. Of course, it's early. But at the point in which we're, we're, we're talking about this team, they're by far, like crazy by far, one of the worst defensive teams. And it could just be forever. We'll see how long this can keep going. I mean, they don't have any defenders. Do they even have Ed Davis can be okay sometimes, but they don't really have anybody that can actually be a good defensive player. And they certainly don't have the a, a unit or anything of that nature. Okay, well, that's going to do it for Around the NBA in 5, and that's going to do it for Celtics Beat. I want to thank my co-host, Adam Lowenstein, Stats Adam. I want to thank our awesome guest, Jay King of Mass Live. 
Uh, I want to thank our music producers. That is Chuck Dietz, Astravex, and Steph Legretteau. So be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore beat. And you can like Celtics beat on CLNS radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. So thanks to everybody. For Adam Lowenstein, I'm Jared Weiss. Thanks to our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, and our executive producer, Larry H. Russell. We'll see you next week on Celtics I used to know I close my